Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. From the Financial Times in London, I'm Christine Spoler, and this is FT Investigations. Swiss banks are known for secrecy, guarding the names of their clients and being discreet about how and where they move money through the global financial system. More than six years ago, U.S. authorities began unraveling some of those techniques in an attempt to crack down on tax evasion. Banks such as UBS and Credit Suisse paid huge fines to U.S. authorities for their roles in helping clients avoid taxes there. Some 80 Swiss banks in total have struck deals with the U.S. to avoid prosecution by paying fines and revealing the names of their American clients. One of them, BSI, was the first to strike a deal. It reached a settlement in March 2015 and paid a $211 million fine. But it turns out BSI, which has offices in Europe, Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East, had been offering some of the same services from its office in London. The U.K. authorities were warned about these practices, but appear to have taken no action against the bank. Tom Burgess, FT Investigations correspondent, reveals all this in a magazine story this week, and he's with me in the studio now to explain what he has found. Also joining us is Ralph Atkins, the FT Bureau Chief in Zurich, who can shed light on the state of Swiss banking. Tom, you've seen internal documents for the bank that spell out the ways the clients were helped to transfer money into offshore accounts, create companies to mask their identity, and to avoid paper trails. You also found out that U.K. authorities were told repeatedly about possible transgressions, but didn't act. How did you think to look at BSI, and what have you pieced together? So, Chris, what we've got here really is a pretty remarkable glimpse of how what you might call the secrecy industry works. Not primarily, as some might think, from Panama or the British Virgin Islands, though those places are important, but how the engines of this industry are in the big financial centres like London. And what we've seen through the documents we've got hold of is the nuts and bolts. So as you said, a year ago, BSI settled in America, and as part of that settlement, they revealed an account of what they did to help U.S. clients, U.S. taxpayers, hide money. And that involved things like setting up shell companies, so a company that has nominee directors that is registered in a place like the British Virgin Islands where ownership can be hidden, using those front companies as the formal holder of a Swiss bank account so that the real human being, the real client, is hidden in the background. Then there are a raft of other techniques to prevent leaving paper trails. So They they had code names. They had code names, so um, it's all well and good hiding the ownership of that money, but obviously you want to be able to have access to that money. So if you're walking around in New York and you've got your money in a Swiss bank account that's not disclosed to the taxman in the US, you need to be able to get hold of it without crucially tipping off the authorities that you have that money hidden. So what BSI would do for those American clients is that they would give the client an anonymous debit card, they would load up that card with cash from the Swiss account, and the client would go around spending that cash when the cash run low, they would send a kind of winking message back along the lines of, 
could you download some more tunes for me, please? Or the, the gas tank is running low and more money would flow into the account. There are various other ruses involving using promoters who are kind of arm's length intermediaries as a go between between the bank and the rich. And what we've found is that a lot of very similar services involving avoiding paper trails, involving shell companies, were available and being offered by BSI bankers in London up to 2008 when they closed that office. They were being offered to uh, a range of clients, some British, but a lot of them Eastern European, Middle Eastern and Russian. And the key to what these files show in terms of the integrity of the UK and the integrity of the city as a financial centre is that a former employee of BSI's London office made a warning back in 2008 to the Financial Services Authority, which was as then the regulator, now called the FCA, the regulator of the city, and to HMRC, which is the British taxman. And this warning said, look, people who follow these things are starting to see that these secrecy techniques are used in tax evasion and the concealment of assets, potentially in, in money laundering. It was a declaration that referred back to a 2002 law in the UK that obliges people who think they may be witnessing transactions involving the proceeds of crime to make a declaration. So the UK regulators have those warnings, and as far as we can tell, fail to act on them. Certainly didn't make any public action. And then seven years later, March last year, we see that this same conduct that apparently went unchecked in the UK is regarded as serious crime in the US. And that's the troubling question at the heart of this. So basically, the kind of activities that the US regulators found fault with, the UK regulators seemed not to take any action with? To a point. I mean, we know we know for sure there was no public action by the regulators against BSI. It's possible, of course, that's because the regulator looked in and decided there was absolutely nothing wrong with what BSI was doing. Often, creating these offshore structures is perfectly legal. It's just that in some circumstances, they can be put to very nefarious means. So the U.S. regulators were finding fault with practices that the U.K. regulators took no action with, at least as far as we know. But the bank was closed or shut down, rather, in 2008. Could that be a reason why? why the UK regulators weren't acting. Yeah, so that's a possibility. So the warning to the regulators came in September 2008. And by then, BSI was already closing its London branch. It had actually had an earlier sort of private warning a few years previously from the regulators in the UK about problems with the way it vetted high-risk clients, as they're called. That means people at risk of um, channeling ill-gotten money, basically, through the UK system. The interesting thing is, though, that obviously the US pursued BSI, even though BSI never had an office in the US. This is a global industry, and frequently we've seen enforcement actions where the bank itself hasn't had a presence. Also, we know from our files that BSI made it very clear to the clients that were being served by the London office that they would continue to serve those clients, but their kind of liaison officers of the bank would be in Monaco or Dubai or wherever. And the the other interesting little point here is that if the British regulators had decided to pursue BSI and to investigate it, its joint venture partner, and until last year, its owner, generally the Italian insurer, maintained its office in London. So it wasn't as if the bank vanished off the face of the earth. It was just that it closed one part of its formal presence in the UK. You do write about some specific clients and one that's fairly well known, if not notorious in the city, ENRC. Can you talk a little bit about that? So what the files show, they show details of some of BSI's client lists. And the, the interesting thing, as opposed to the US case where we're talking about American clients, is that the vast majority, from what we can see, of the clients that BSI's bankers in London were serving are not British. A lot of them are Eastern European and Russian, seemingly some of the most wealthy Russians of the Putin era. A guy described as a modern-day Medici, who's a um, Qatari prince. 
And then, as you say, people related to ENRC, which was a company formed by a trio of Central Asian oligarchs on the back of a mining privatisation in Kazakhstan. And this company, they brought it to London. It listed in 2007 amid much fanfare. This is still a time when commodity prices are booming. And there follows pretty much unmitigated strife, during which ENRC becomes a byword for what some believe is the lax standards of the city in vetting companies that arrive. So ENRC eventually departs in 2013, company goes private again, but by then it's under investigation by the Serious Fraud Office for corruption allegations. ENRC denied those allegations and the company went private, but what's interesting from the BSI files is a window onto some of the... uh, complex offshore structures that were used by BSI to assist those clients in the way they wanted to move their money around the world. Nothing, as I say, inherently wrong with that, but these are extraordinary lengths to go to to be able to move money in a discreet way, and it raises the question of what legitimate purpose do these offshore services have other than allowing people to move money in in secrecy. Yeah, and and I think in one circumstance, you show how they did five transactions in a single day. And one of the persons who helped bring in or had some association with the NRC, in fact, would not be known to anybody who looked at any public documents. It would only be those privy to the law firm record. How many stories have there been over recent years of people referring to complex offshore structures? What we can really see here is the nuts and bolts of how this works. So you say, yeah, a series of five interrelated transactions, at the end of which a man, Abdul Malik Merakmadov, who works for ENRC, who used to work for ENRC at the time, these transactions mean that there is an offshore company which has nominee directors. I think the company is registered in the British Virgin Islands. It's owned by another company in Belize, as I recall, and that's certainly one that he also uses. Then there's a Panamanian law firm involved and several coatings upon coatings of secrecy around around a company that shield the identity of the true owner. What the U.S. regulators did with BSI and the action that it took there, and then when you see what has happened here, does that give you any hope that some of these practices will end, or did they just evolve? This is the big question now. So obviously this week we have David Cameron's corruption summit in London. A lot of calls from kind of transparency campaigners for him to help to advance this campaign that's got a lot of momentum in recent years for greater transparency in the global financial system. So that means things like publishing the, the true owners of companies. That big US campaign... I'd be interested to know what Ralph thinks about this, but I speak to a lot of people who see that big campaign by American prosecutors against the Swiss banks as a moment where one of the sort of great redoubts of financial secrecy was challenged after many decades. And we're seeing in other parts of the financial system, especially in tax havens, it's becoming more and more difficult to keep money secret. That said, and this is what the former employer of BSI, who gave that warning to the regulators back in 2008. That former employee says the lesson of history is that secrecy evolves and money will always find a way to be secret and that every time there is a new shaft of sunlight onto some part of the financial system, there is a new hidden part where money can be stashed. Uh, Ralph, let me ask you about that. Financial secrecy has now become a global concern. The Panama Papers, the leak of millions of documents for the law firm of Mossack Fonseca, shows that offshore banking has just become a convenient way for billions of dollars, and including some ill-gotten gains, to go missing every year from government authorities. So what has been the effect on banks? The U.S. probe began in 2008 with a Senate inquiry. 
In 2015, and that's just a year ago now, U.S. prosecutors were pushing banks to come clean about complicity in tax evasion cases in order to avoid astronomical fines. Is it working? Well, there's lots of sort of issues tied up there. I mean, I think what is fair to say, and uh, Tom alluded to this earlier, is that the U.S. fines on Swiss banks have had a huge impact on the Swiss banking industry. And, you know, you never quite know, but the models of the Swiss banking institutions have had to change, really. They can't act for clients in any way other than in total compliance with U.S. and other countries' tax rules. I mean, at least it's what they, what they say. And they've had to develop other ways of finding new business. They've gone after a lot of the sort of entrepreneurs in emerging markets and offered wealth management services to them. A bit of big push into emerging markets. But there's sort of the emphasis is, you know, we are tax compliant now. But this is possibly, as you've alluded, just simply displace the problem to other parts of the world. And what do you hear from bankers in in Switzerland? Are they saying, we're clean, look elsewhere? We've written this week about some other issues with U.S. havens. What's the chatter? Swiss bankers always very conservative, don't like to um, be in the headlines too much if they can possibly avoid it. But they are becoming bolder in saying, actually, maybe the problem is more in some of these U.S. tax shelters or whatever, and not here in Switzerland. Of course, I mean, maybe the problem in, in Switzerland is something now a bit different. I mean, I think what the regulator here has highlighted is the, the risks Swiss banks are facing in terms of money laundering risks because of their expansion in countries about which we did not know so much about their financial systems and still don't. But in the sort of core business of dealing with the wealth of Western European or American clients, I don't think there's really any alternative for a Swiss bank to be anything than totally compliant. So where does that leave us with BSI, Tom? Well, BSI, at the time of the settlement in the US, generally the Italian owner was trying to sell BSI. It could only do that once the deal was closed with the US prosecutors and it sold it to BTG Pactual, which is a Brazilian bank. And then a little while later, BTG had its own problems and it sold it on to EFG International, another Swiss bank uh, that wants to combine with BSI and make a, a very large Swiss bank. BSI said to us when we gave them the opportunity to comment on the story that they have very strict controls and they cooperate with the authorities on questions such as money laundering whenever they're required to do so. They have more problems. A BSI banker has been implicated in the 1MDB scandal that's convulsing Malaysia, though we should say the bank has not been accused of any wrongdoing. It is in the nature of financial secrecy that we would never know from the outside how clean it would become. A lot of Swiss bankers would argue to you that actually the problems have moved to other places. But more broadly, the question remains for the City of London, how is it that, in the to quote the head of the National Crime Agency last year, how is it that hundreds of billions of criminal dollars are still laundered through British banks each year, presumably through techniques that are evolutions of the ones that BSI employed? David Cameron, UK Prime Minister, was in fact burned by some disclosures in the Panama Papers. Offshore investments from his father, all perfectly legal it appears, put Mr. Cameron in an uncomfortable position of defending the ways of the wealthy. Tax avoidance is one thing, but tax evasion, which is a crime, is another. The Corruption Summit this week, is this a real effort to rid the system of problems? Well, the... Officials behind the Corruption Summit say simultaneously that it's David Cameron's attempt to burnish his legacy, but also that we shouldn't expect huge breakthroughs in the fight against corruption. I think what it's done for Cameron, which makes it slightly uncomfortable for him, is that it's thrown attention on the UK's role here. I think for many, many years, 
discussion about corruption was accompanied by a kind of casual racism and corruption is basically things that people in far off lands do. Big settlements in corruption cases in the US have given the light to that. We've seen some major multinationals based in the West admit to bribery. And now we see with leaks like the Panama Papers, with our own story this week, the extent to which the major financial centres and especially London are at the heart of this. And Cameron is under big pressure to do something to force the British Crown dependencies, British Virgin Islands, Guernsey, places like that, to force these places to open up and to share information on company ownership with law enforcement agencies. I think it looks quite unlikely he's going to be able to deliver on that. So we're going to have to see whether this summit is able to do anything that hasn't been achieved before. Well, delivering or not, I'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot more about the secrets of the clandestine financial world this year. Thanks, Tom and Ralph, for connecting the dots between London and Switzerland and beyond. If you'd like to read more about this topic, the full story of Tom's investigation will be published in the FT magazine this weekend, and you can read it on FT.com. If you enjoy listening to our FT podcasts, please help more people discover them by rating them or writing a review of them on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you download them. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.